Let's try some uh, crowd participation this morning. Is that okay? Raise your hand if you have ever moved. Keep your hands raised if you enjoyed that move. <laughs> One person. Okay. When, whenever you move, it's very stressful and time-consuming. Uh, we have a family that we love very dearly uh, who have lived in the same house for over 40 years. And that's the Holtz, and they're going to be moving, and they need all the help they can get. And so on Tuesday, uh, that's going to take place. Kyle, what time will that begin? 12.30. And Kyle, would you stand and wave to everyone so they know who you are? This is your contact man. If you would be willing to help uh, the deacons and uh, those who have assembled around the Holtz move on Tuesday, that would be greatly, greatly appreciated. So open your Bibles with me and turn to the book of Romans, Romans chapter 1. And as you're making your way to Romans chapter 1, I would invite you to, to stand with me for the reading of God's Word. And the title of the message this morning is A Grim Indictment, Part 2. Read along with me, beginning in Romans chapter 1, verse 21. This is God's Word. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, uh, it is such a privilege to be together with the people of God, with the word of God open before us. We thank you for this love letter that has revealed uh, your redemptive plan for, for the nations, for all of your people. We sang about that earlier, that you came, you sent your son so that he would save a, a people for his own possession. Lord Jesus, we thank you that your plan is being fulfilled throughout redemptive history, throughout the ages, all for the glory of God. And a part of that process, a part of that plan is spending time in the word of God. And we're, we're so grateful to have this, this rich honor to read these words, to meditate upon these words, to study these words. And Lord, uh, we want to thank you this morning for saving us as we'll conclude our service this morning around the Lord's table. We want to, to thank you for saving us. And so would you uh, set our hearts aright? Would you remove any distractions? Would you remove any thoughts that would hinder uh, the word of God from working in a powerful and effectual way in the lives of people today? Lord, as we pray from week to week, we know that there are people here today who are not yet Christians. And I pray that today would be the day of salvation for someone. Not because of anything that I can do or say, not because of even the will of the creature, but because of the force of a sovereign and powerful God. So God, would you move here in this place today? May the name of Jesus be lifted high as we study your word together. In Jesus' name, amen. 
Well, last week, you recall that we focused our attention on what we've referred to as the grim indictment, which appears in these verses, Romans chapter 1, verses 21 to 23. You'll recall that an indictment is a, a formal charge or an accusation of a serious crime. When someone is indicted, they stand before a judge and they are held accountable for their crimes. Five charges are leveled against the creature in this passage. And each of the charges, you need to remember, is made in light of the revelation that the creature has received. And here is the basic gist of that revelation. The creature knows God. Look in the context here of Romans chapter 1, beginning in verse 19. Paul says, For what can be known about God is what? Not obscure, but plain to them. Because God has shown it to them. That's like a double revelation. He has shown it to them. It is plain to them. Verse 20, For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power, and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so they are, what? Without excuse. This is the revelation of God. A clear portrait of God. A clear portrait of the God who acts in time and space. You remember the words from Francis Schaeffer, he is there and he is not silent. And we have in verses 19 and 20 also a clear portrait of the God who creates, the God who creates all things for his glory. And so in light of this crystal clear revelation, every creature stands without excuse. All creatures, therefore, are accountable to a holy God. I've shared it a couple of times, I believe, the well-known atheistic philosopher and thinker Bertrand Russell. Here's a man who utterly repudiated the existence of God, and he was asked, when you die, if, it, if you find out that God existed, what would you say? And he would say, not enough evidence. Well, we know from these verses that there is no excuse, not even for the likes of Bertrand Russell. Last week, we looked at the first two formal indictments. The first indictment was that the creatures have failed to honor God as God. They have failed to give him the glory that is due him. The second indictment is they have failed to give thanks to God. And we made this very important point that one of the fundamental marks of a follower of Jesus Christ is that he or she is thankful. Isn't that shocking? That the fundamental mark of a Christian is that this man, this woman, this boy, this girl is thankful. Now look with me now at the next two indictments, and I'm sure that you will agree and that we can all agree together that these are indeed grim indictments. 
The next indictment, the third indictment, occurs in verse 21. In the middle of verse 21, it says that they became futile in their thinking. That is, they have failed to to think thoughts after God. They have become futile in their thinking. What does it mean? Well, the word futile comes from a, a little Greek word that means to become useless as a consequence of being without purpose. Now, think about this. Pastor Rick Warren, and some of you may have your quibbles and your quarrels with him, but he wrote a book many, many years ago. It has become a, an all-time bestseller. And the title of that book is The Purpose-Driven Life. And something happened when Rick Warren wrote that book is he, he tapped into something. He tapped into this idea that people need a purpose. Christians and non-Christians alike are people who are trying to find themselves or trying to find where, where is my place in this world? What is my purpose in this world? And people go from place to place and from town to town and from hobby to hobby, from relationship to relationship, from substance to substance, trying to find what is my purpose. And last week we learned what that purpose is. It's very simple and it's very profound. Isaiah chapter 43 verse 7, that God has created all people for this purpose, for his glory. God creates us for his glory. So what is the chief end of man? The Westminster Shorter Catechism asks. The answer to that question is follows. The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. But Paul says that the creature has become futile in their thinking. That word futile also means without purpose or incapable of producing results. Think about the self-made man, the self-made woman. This verse says that the non-believer has a mind that is incapable of producing results. And I can just hear the response from the pagan mind. Hogwash! I'm a self-made woman. I'm a self-made man. I became a millionaire when I was 35 years of age. Well, we're not talking about finances. We're not talking about human ability. We're talking about the mind and its relationship to God to think thoughts after God. And here's what Paul says. That thinking is futile. And what is significant about this term, it is that is, as I've already indicated, It's connected to the mind. And you say, where is it connected to the mind? Look at verse 21 again. They became futile in their, what's the word? Thinking. They became futile in their thinking. That word thinking comes from a term that means this. It's the process of using one's mind to carefully consider something. This is where the reasoning occurs. Now, when we put the two words together, futile and thinking, and if you think carefully about the argument of Paul, this becomes almost nonsensical. Because thinking refers to where reasoning occurs. The mind is the instrument where we exercise reason. We make judgments 
But Paul says this, that reasoning ability has become what? Futile. It's become futile. About 18 months ago, and this is a crazy, crazy story, and I won't, I won't give the whole backstory about how I got there, but I owe it all to my wife. And if you want to know the backstory, you can ask me later. I've shared it with some of you. But about 18 months ago, Doreen and I began to take a look at our, our personal health, which includes diet and nutrition and exercise and stress and sleep. And it is the last one that I struggle with the most. My personal goal is to get six hours of sleep a night, and I rarely accomplish that. And people say, that's not so. That is just crazy. But we learned that it's a process of diet and nutrition and exercise and stress and sleep. And one of the things that we discovered is that certain foods, and maybe I should have known this 30 years ago, but I guess I didn't. Certain foods, most notably carbohydrates, especially in the form of processed foods, do not promote good brain health. Say, what in the world is this? Now think about this. I'm a guy who loves donuts. Some of you know that. And Doreen teases me about this all the time. I I would rationalize it this way. I'd go on a 20-mile bike ride and come home just sweating like a maniac. And I would rationalize it like this. I just rode 20 miles on my bike hard, like fast. Therefore, I can eat the whole box of powdered sugared raspberry-filled donuts. I mean, it makes perfect logical sense, right? And I remember her telling me, honey, you are crazy. It doesn't work that way. And I, we, so we had a little standoff at the OK Corral, right? Because I rode the miles. I deserve the six donuts. And man, those donuts are so good. Oh. And so what we learned, however, is, is this. I would not be motivated by merely losing a few pounds. I would not be motivated by these short-term health goals. But when I watch a documentary that proves beyond a shadow of a doubt that if I continue to eat like this, if I continue to ignore the stress of my life, if I continue to, to cast aside good nutrition, that will have an adverse effect on my brain, brain health. Now, what I do for a living, if I don't have brain health, I'm finished. If I can't think, if I can't reason, if I can't study, if I can't memorize, if I can't meditate, I'm finished. And so this documentary, which was not Christian in any way, shape, or form, had a profound effect on me. Because I have people in my family, and you have friends and family members who have been affected with some kind of neurological disorder some kind of dementia, some kind of Alzheimer's disease. It's a horrible, horrible thing. And so when I watch this documentary, I become motivated all of a sudden. We learn that in the end, it's carbs, especially from processed foods, were a major contributing factor to what some have referred to as brain fog. How many of you... See, it just happened to me right there. How many of you have ever had brain fog? You can't remember where you put your keys. You can't remember a conversation from earlier that morning. You can't even remember what you thought of just a moment ago. How about this one? You're at your desk or 
uh, you're at work and you think to yourself, oh, I need to go across and do X, Y, Z. And you get up and go like this and you get there and went, I have no idea what I got here for. If that's happened to you, that's brain fog. And so what Doreen and I learned is this, this long, complex series of things through nutrition and diet and stress and exercise and all the rest contribute to what physicians refer to as brain fog and also lead to other nasty medical conditions like type 2 diabetes, neurological dysfunction and disease. Now, as crippling and as horrifying and as scary as brain fog is, I want you to consider something now that is even more important, and it's rarely talked about. So what I like to refer to as spiritual brain fog, because that's exactly what Paul is addressing here in verse 21. This person who has become futile in his or her thinking. In your notes, you'll see a section that we have entitled Marks of a Futile Mind. And I want to take some time, and I hope your Bibles are open, because I want to have you go from Scripture to Scripture to Scripture to have you see and to convince you what are the marks of a futile mind. The first one you see is that the unregenerate mind fails to discern between between truth and error. You've seen this in conversations with unbelievers is they just can't discern between truth and error. This is one of the fundamental marks of spiritual brain brain fog. Turn over in your Bibles to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8 verses 7 and 8. While you're turning there, and you may have heard me refer to this before, there's a school of, of, of thinking that says Romans 8, 7, and 8 is about the, the, the spirit-filled Christian and the carnal Christian. Let me say in blatant terms, there is no carnal Christian. The carnal Christian is a fabrication of men. There is no biblical warrant for someone who says i became a christian at camp gilead in 1976 and now i i live like hell i cheat on my taxes i cheat on my wife i steal i commit fornication i'm a carnal christian no that's a person who is not a christian right Verses 7 and 8 say this, For the mind that is set on the flesh, that is the unbeliever, is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. And so the unregenerate mind fails to submit to God and his word. Go over to Colossians chapter 2. And I, as I warned a moment ago, we're going to look at about five or six verses here. Colossians chapter 2, verse 8. The apostle issues a warning here. A warning that we've seen many times. He says to the believers at the church in Colossae, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elementary spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. And what we learn is that one of the marks of a futile mind is that 
It blindly follows a worldly ideology. It blindly follows a worldly philosophy. And so when you try to convince your unbelieving friends of the the perils of atheism, of the perils of postmodernity, of the, the perils of other kinds of world religions, and they just can't see it. That is one of the marks and one of the symptoms of spiritual brain, brain fog. Look over at 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. And Paul says it like this in 1 Corinthians 2, 14. The natural person, that is the unbeliever, that is the pagan, that is the unconverted creature, does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. That is, the the pagan mind, the unconverted mind, cannot comprehend spiritual truth. And make no mistake, that does not suggest that unbelievers have low IQs. That does not suggest that an unbeliever can't be an educated individual. That does not suggest that unconverted people don't have it up here. But what Paul does say is that as smart as they can be, they simply cannot comprehend spiritual truth. The unregenerate mind, moreover, is is numb to the things of God. It's numb to the things of God. Turn over also with me to 2 Timothy chapter 4. 2 Timothy chapter 4. And here is Paul's admonition to this young pastor. He speaks of people who, and he refers in verse 3, a time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions, verse 4, and they will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. You ever wonder why your unbelieving friend or family member has spiritual brain fog? It's because that's how God said it would be in that individual's life. The unregenerate mind also disregards the promises of God. God sets forth all these promises throughout sacred scripture. And the pagan mind says, not interested, not going there. Back to Romans chapter 8 verse 5. Where Paul says this. Those who live according to the flesh. And recall that is the unbeliever. Set their minds on the things of the flesh. The unbelieving mind is fixated on the flesh. Why do our unbelieving friends have, have this agenda where all they do is, is focus on the things of the world? It's because that's what Paul says they will be about. He also says that in Philippians chapter 3, verses 19 and 20. He says their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and their glory is in their shame. Listen, with minds set on what? Earthly things. That is their fixation, that is their preoccupation, their mind is set on earthly things. Go near the end of the New Testament to the book of Jude. The book of Jude and... Of course, Jude only has one chapter in verse 18. We'll look at a couple verses in Jude. Here we read that in the last time, 
In the last days, there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. Following their own ungodly passions. That is the the pagan mind loves the world and hates the kingdom of God. Look over at verse 4 in Jude. Jude says certain people have crept in unnoticed. And you recall in our series on the book of Jude, these are people who, who snuck into the local church. And I'm convinced that this includes deacons and elders and teachers and leaders who, who snuck in the back door. They crept in unnoticed. They, they flew in under the radar who long ago were designated for this condemnation ungodly people who pervert the grace of God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. And Jude says on the basis of that discovery that he made in the church, he writes, I urge you, brothers and sisters, to what? Contend for the faith. To contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. You see, the unregenerate mind is futile. It is, if you're a word picture person, it is socked in by spiritual fog. You fly into London, you're ready to see the beauty of London, and what do you see? You see nothing. The pagan mind is socked in like Heathrow Airport by the London fog. The unregenerate mind fails to think God's thoughts. He fails to think thoughts after God. That's the explanation. But I want to pose a second question, and that is, what are the expectations of God? What is God calling the creature to? And there are several things. First, I want you to see that our minds must be focused on eternity. Instead of the things of this world, instead of being fixated on the world, our Minds are to be focused on eternity. Colossians 3, 2. Set your minds on things that are, help me, above. Not on the things that are on the earth. God also expects that our minds are to be focused on God. Romans 8, 5. We we saw this verse. Those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to their spirit set their minds on the things of Of the spirit. Moreover, our minds must be focused on the things of God. And Paul says this in Philippians 4, 8. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable. If there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Fourth, our minds must be transformed. Paul says this in Romans 12. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Finally, our minds must be devoted to God. Our minds must be devoted to God. Do, do me a favor and go over to Ephesians chapter 4. And my suspicion is 
if, if it hasn't happened thus far, this is where the lights should go on. This is where you should hear a little ding, ding, ding. Okay? Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17. Let me know if the ding, ding, ding happens in your mind. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. You must no longer live as the Gentiles do. You must no longer conduct your lives as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds or thinking. Did the light go on? Did you hear the ding, ding, ding? You see the... the the predisposition of the unconverted creature is to have a mind or thinking that is saturated by futility. I received a copy of a book and it was probably 26 or 27 years ago. I should have brought it to show you. I gave a copy to a dear brother a few weeks ago. The title of the book is called The Christian Mind by Harry Blameyers. My Uncle Dwight gave me that book, and he said, I'd like you to read this book. If you're a real man, you'll read it through. Guess what? I read it. I think I've read it three times now, which I think. It's a terrific book, but here is the essence of the book. Blameyer says this, the mind of man must be one for God. Open the newspaper someday. Turn on to your favorite news station. Turn on to CNN. Lord have mercy. MSNBC, ditto, Fox News, whatever, ABC, NBC, CBS. You, you turn on the news and you ask yourself this question. Is the mind of man being one for God? And the answer is a resounding, are you kidding me? That is the general pattern of our culture. That the mind of man is not being one for God. The mind of man has been taken captive by the evil one. It's interesting, uh, an attorney approached the Lord Jesus Christ and asked him what the most important thing in the law is. And Jesus surprised him when he said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind. That's why Blameyer says the mind of man must be one for God. Let me make this very practical by asking this question. What does it look like? What does it look like to think thoughts after God? Four things. It means that we must reevaluate our priorities. It means that we must reevaluate our passions. It means that we must reevaluate our plans. And here's the bottom line. It means that we need to start thinking like Christians. The worldview of Francis Schaeffer can be summed up like this. He wanted his readers to think Christianly. Is it any wonder I say that every college student should read the works of Francis Schaeffer? Because college students are notorious for not thinking Christianly. And so may I challenge you this morning, wherever you are, and I want to address my believing friends at Christ Fellowship. Are you thinking like a Christian? Or have you been taken captive by the ideology of the world? Is your mind a reflection of the priorities and passions and plans of God? Are your priorities, passions, and plans God-centered? Are your plans vertical or are your plans 
horizontal? Are you focusing? Are you fixated on the things of God? Or are you fixated on the things of this life? It could be safe to say that the author that has influenced me the most in this area is Randy Alcorn. Here's a man who is God-centered in the way he conducts his life. He is a a vertical-focused kind of man. And so I would ask, what needs to change in your life? What needs to be eliminated? What needs to be added? Where does the Word of God fit in? And there's a monumental problem that focuses here in our passage in Romans chapter 1. And that is that unconverted people have become futile in their thinking. This is the third indictment. They have failed to think thoughts after God. Guilty. They're guilty. No exceptions. And if you have not turned from your sin, if you have not turned to the Lord Jesus Christ, you too stand among the guilty creatures. Some of you are wondering, are we ever going to make it through verse 21? Lord willing, today will be the day because there's a fourth indictment I want you to see that's also in verse 21. Look at it with me. They become futile in their thinking. And here's the fourth one. And their foolish hearts were darkened. That is, they have failed to have a heart for God. Now, what does it mean? To understand what Paul is driving at here, we need to take a closer look at what he refers to as the cardia. You're all Greek scholars all of a sudden because you all know what a cardia is. Galen and I were just talking about the cardia. When you go to visit your friendly cardiologist, we all know that's not the foot doctor. We all know that's not the eye doctor. We all know that's not the internal specialist. That is the, what kind of a doctor? That's the heart doctor. He's a heart specialist. Paul is not talking here about that unbelievable muscle that pumps blood throughout your body. The heart, the cardia, is the very center of a person's thoughts. It is the very center of a person's volitions, that is, his or her will, his or her emotions, his or her knowledge of right and wrong. This is where the the conscience is a part of your cardia. The heart, simply put, is who you are. Have you ever said to someone, I hope you can just tell what my heart is in this matter? And sometimes you learn that the heart motives are commendable. And other times you say, yeah, I can tell what your heart is. You're a rat. You're a deceiver. You're a scoundrel. The heart is who we are as people. And we learn two things about the heart of every unconverted person. And this is the reason this is so relevant for all of us today. Is because many of you are believers. And so you can say at this point that your heart is no longer foolish. Praise the Lord. Your heart is no longer darkened. Praise the Lord. 
but it was at one point. If you've been a believer less than six months, the second before you became a Christian, you know this about your cardia, your heart. It was foolish. It was darkened. When I became a Christian on July 4th, 1974, I know one thing, that the moment before 7 p.m., when I turned from my sin and turned to Jesus, my cardia was foolish and it was darkened. That word foolish means uncomprehending. It means lacking the ability to understand. It means void of understanding. And the word darkened comes from a Greek term that means to be unable or unwilling to perceive or understand. You might say that the, the sum total of foolishness and darkened is massive ignorance. I don't know about you, but there's one thing I don't like to be called. You're ignorant. Wow. But that's what Paul says about the unbelieving heart, the unbelieving cardia. And what you have here is a heart that is spiritually incapacitated. And so when an unconverted person tells you, as one of my friends recently told me right to my face, that I am not religious, but spiritual. That person is deceiving themselves. It's also a loaded statement. It's a, it's a deeply misguided statement. What we learn about the unconverted heart in this passage, I believe, is absolutely devastating. Yes, the unconverted heart is spiritual. Every person, Christian or non-Christian alike, is a worshiper. The problem is that unbelieving people worship anything and everything besides the living God. They worship foreign deities. They worship Mother Earth. And by the way, that's a big one in this county. They worship the great spirit that is not the spirit of God. That is a pagan deity. That is Mother Earth. They worship money. They worship materialism. They worship their own intellect. They worship everything under the sun, except they don't worship God's son. They worship everything under the sun, but they refuse to worship the son of God. And so ask yourself, ask yourself this question. What is it that God is asking for here? What are his expectations? There are five heart commands, as I like to refer to it as in scripture. And the first is that we are called upon by a holy God to have a tender heart. Now think about this. A tender heart in comparison to what we see in verse 21, a foolish heart or a darkened heart. Listen to Deuteronomy chapter 10. And now, O Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments and the statutes of the Lord, which I am commanding you today for your own good. Listen, behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heaven of heavens, the earth with all that is in it. Yet the Lord set his heart in love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them. You above all peoples and you are this day. Here's the key. 
circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. What is God calling for? He's calling Israel and extended throughout today, he's calling every person to have a tender, pliable, soft heart that beats for the living God. Secondly, he's calling us to have a new heart. He calls each of us to have a new heart. Ezekiel chapter 18, 31. Cast away from you all the transgressions that you have committed. And listen, make for yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. And I hope that some of you are, are, are sensing the problem here. God says, you must have a tender heart. You must have a new heart. You remember Romans chapter 8? There was a word that surfaced in Romans chapter 8 and also 1 Corinthians chapter 2 that concerned ability. My favorite buzzword, free will. God says, circumcise your heart. Make for yourselves a new heart. Do you see the problem? Number three, he calls each of us to have a believing heart. Mark chapter 11, verse 22, Jesus answered them, have faith in God. God is calling each of us to have believing hearts. That is set in contrast to what kind of a heart? An unbelieving heart. He's calling us moreover to have hearts that are repentant. Acts 2.38, Peter says to the crowd, repent And be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Would you go with me to John chapter 3? And man, I love John chapter 3. Here's the story of the exchange between Nicodemus and the Lord Jesus Christ. And Nicodemus comes to this providential encounter with the Savior After the sun has gone down and Jesus calls this man and he calls each of us to have a heart that is born again. He says in verse 8, the wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. What does all this look like? What does it look like when you go home today? What does it look like when you take a walk or go for a run or go to the park or go to Starbucks or go to visit your friend or to go spend some time at your your family's house or whatever it is you do this week? What does this look like to have a heart for God? The sum total of these commands means that creatures must have hearts that are soft to the things of God. Hearts that are totally new, totally renovated, totally reformed. This is the heart that believes God, who believes the word of God, who believes the promises of God, who believes the gospel. This is a heart that that turns from sin and turns to the Lord Jesus Christ. In short, this is the born again heart. But here's the problem. Unconverted people, as Paul tells us in Romans chapter 1, have a cardia. They have a heart problem, and it's 
That's a massive understatement. They have hearts that are foolish and hearts that are darkened. They have failed to have a heart for God. And they're guilty. Absolutely guilty. And this is the fourth indictment. I want to close. And you know the typical thing. A pastor says it's time to close. And you say, oh, good. We're done in two minutes. This will be an extended closing. And like I remember a teacher of mine said in about sixth grade. Now, class, if you look at the clock, it's time to go home. But I want you to keep your notebooks open. And so I want to kind of steal that line from my teacher and say, I want you to keep your Bibles open because there's something that's critically important that you need to see. I want you to think carefully about the two indictments that we've discovered, namely that the creature has failed to think thoughts after God. That's indictment number three. And that the creature has failed to have a heart for God. That's indictment number four. If you're thinking carefully, and I trust you are, you will see, and I hope I set you up for this so that you're ready for it, that we are on the horns of a magnanimous dilemma. It was the theologian, St. Augustine, born 354, died 430, who understood this dilemma. The dilemma is basically this. We as depraved people that pagans that unconverted people they lack the ability to trust god believe in god obey god worship god yet what what does god expect of them he calls them to have circumcised hearts he calls them to have new hearts he calls them to have a believing heart he calls them to have repentant hearts he calls them to have a born again heart and so augustine understood that dilemma and indeed we are on the horns of a dilemma He prayed a prayer, and it is one of the most powerful prayers I've ever heard. It's a one-line prayer, and it's on the screen for you. He prayed, grant what thou commandest, and command what thou dost desire. You might have to read that four or five times to get to the essence of what he's praying. And let let me bring it up to 2019 language. Would that be okay? No disrespect to our hero, St. Augustine. He's praying this, God... Tell me what you require of me and give me the ability to pull it off. God, tell me what your commandments are are, and give me the ability to obey. There is a British monk by the name of Pelagius who battled most of his adult life with St. Augustine and he held that the command to obey implied the ability to obey. Now, I want you to hear something that many of you have never heard before. It's something that is has swept through evangelical circles and conservative churches and Baptist churches and Presbyterian churches, charismatic churches, four-square churches, brethren churches, Calvary chapels, some more than others. But it's the, the notion that God will give us sufficient ability, that should be your key, to obey every commandment that he lays on the table. And that is the lie of Pelagius. Yet many of us have have 
sunk our teeth into that lie, hook, line, and sinker. It was Pelagius who was condemned in church history as an arch heretic. I remember R.C. Sproul referring to Pelagius as a heresiarch, an arch heretic. Pelagianism was condemned at the Third Ecumenical Council in Ephesus in AD 341. And here's the bottom line. And we'll try to, to, to solve this dilemma. The bottom line is this. We are responsible creatures. And so God commands. But God is also sovereign. And so he grants what he commands. And I want to leave you with five examples. And I hope this will help you solve the dilemma. Each of these examples begins with the responsibility and it ends with the gift. And this is something that has been massively important to me in my understanding in the Christian life. Let's start with the first of five things. Responsibility number one. Deuteronomy chapter 10 verse 16. Let's look at that on the screen. Deuteronomy chapter 10 verse 16 says this. And we've seen this already today. Circumcise your heart. Let me ask you this question. Do unbelievers have the ability to do that? They lack the ability to do that. They even lack the desire to do that. Why? Because they hate a holy God. Before I was converted on July 4th, 1974, I hated a holy God. You may not want to admit that, but you need to reconcile that in your mind because that's what the scripture says about your cardia, about your mind, that before you were converted, you hated a holy God. And so God says, circumcise your heart. But here's the gift. We are responsible, but the gift is this. Deuteronomy 36, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart. Is that good news for anyone? It's like, wow. So I I, I talk, and some of you know it's a little bit of a hot button for me, this whole issue of free will, right? I have people, I've had people, and Doreen remembers this, I had a guy so mad at me after I preached a sermon, I literally thought he was going to punch me in the face. What about free will? What about free will? What about free will? You lack the ability. You lack the inclination. You lack the desire. You will not be able to circumcise your heart. But God in his sovereignty and his graciousness has promised the Lord your God will circumcise your heart. Example number two. There's a responsibility in Ezekiel chapter 18, 31. Make for yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. May I ask, do unbelievers have the capacity the ability the desire the inclination to do that and the crowd responded with a massive no in stereo here's the gift ezekiel 36 26 this is the promise of the new covenant i will give you a new heart and a new spirit i will put within you is that good news wow example number three we've seen in mark chapter 11 verse 22 where There's an imperative on the table. Have faith in God. May I remind you that we are told to believe this is a two-pronged deal. It is not only an invitation, and that's the way I did it for many years in my ministry. Come 
Isaiah says, come, taste, drink, but it's not only an invitation. When Jesus says to believe, when the apostles say to believe, it's also a command. It is an imperative that is set before us. The gift is found in Ephesians 2.8, and you're very familiar with it. You have been saved through faith. It is the gift of God. Fourth example, there's a responsibility in Acts 2.38, and it's a one-word imperative, repent. Repent. The gift is found in 2 Timothy 2.25. God may perhaps grant them repentance. We will see later in Romans chapter 2, whenever any of us repent and believe, we know that it was the kindness of God that led us to repentance. Finally, we saw in John chapter 3, the imperative set before Nicodemus, the imperative to every creature, no exclusions, you must be born again. John chapter 3, verse 8, the wind blows where it wishes, so it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. You see, I take no credit for my salvation. You take no credit for your salvation. You have been, you have been bought with a price. It is the Holy Spirit who regenerates you exclusively. And that is why Reformed theologians refer to this mantra, regeneration precedes faith. I do not believe in order to get born again. That's what I taught for years. You do not believe to get born again. You were born again so that you have the ability to believe. One of the last great thinkers at Princeton, B.B. Warfield, I refer to this as B.B. Warfield's wisdom because I love B.B. Warfield. He says this, the recovery of sinners is entirely on the free grace of God. The grace which is therefore indispensable, irresistible, indefectible, and being thus the free grace of God must have lain in all the details of all its conference and working and the intention of God from eternity. If you are not yet a follower of Jesus and you freely acknowledge that each of the four indictments that we have seen so far are, are hanging over your head, I plead with you on this day, on this beautiful August day, to turn from your sin and to trust the Lord Jesus Christ. Please know that your salvation is ultimately in the hands of the Lord, but he is calling you to turn from your sin and to turn to Jesus, the one who paid the price for the sins of everyone who would ever believe. I want to invite at this time, I want to invite the worship team up. I want to invite those who will be distributing the elements for the Lord's Supper. And as they're coming, may I make one final plea. I want to plead with every follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. And remind you that in terms of redemptive history, what I mean by that is some of you are 20 and some of you are 90 and many of you are somewhere in between. It was not long ago when you too faced the mighty wrath of God. It was not long ago when you failed to to think thoughts after God. It was not long ago when you failed to have a heart for God. And my prayer and my desire is as we continue to study these, these grim indictments that you would see your previous condition, 
your previous condition, these are no longer true of you. You are in Christ. But as you see the, the horror of what God delivered you from by his grace and for his glory, that you would cry out, thank you for saving me. Let's sing that together. to take the Lord's Supper, we, we first of all want to invite any of you who are visiting with us uh, to share in this with us. The only biblical requirement for doing so is that you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. If you place your faith in him uh, for your salvation.